0: kids i mean it's amazing what things are happening on wednesday night so we have that in your prayer time for god to continue to bless our time on wednesday we're having a good study we're having good fellowship and we have a lot of kids now coming on wednesday night they don't come on sunday morning necessarily but more they you do come on wednesday night and someone told me last week it's probably just because of the cooking the food they get and that's the compliment to sheila she does a lot of good cooking for us so we appreciate that all right hey this week our text comes from the last book in the old testament it's the book of malachi And I contemplated last week, as we were preparing for this morning, maybe doing a short series from the book of Malachi. But after some prayer time, it seemed the Lord led us to only one particular chapter, chapter 3, which we get in today. And for that matter, really narrowing down then to only five verses, or one verse at the end of chapter 2. But really, verses for us to hear today, and it's like God said, you don't need a series, you need this message today. So we're going to be looking at Malachi chapter 3, the first five verses, but we will get the last verse of chapter 2 as well during the reading time this morning. But before the reading, let us briefly talk about being skeptical and or being cynical. Because while I never gave it much thought in the research I did last week, I found there is a little subtle difference that exists in someone being described as septi- skeptical or cynical. So first of all, to be skeptical means then this, not easily convinced, having doubts or reservations. An example of which would be this, the last week the Colts were playing the Chiefs, I had a lot of serious doubt. I was very skeptical that the Colts would beat the Chiefs. So they, I, I had reservations about it, the Colts really hadn't played that well all this year so far, they should have been, they were in very impressive. They were playing at home, which gave them advantage, but I was still yet having reservations, having some serious doubt that the Colts would beat the Chiefs. So label me then as skeptical. But that is different than being cynical, because to be cynical is to possess distrust of human nature or motives, maybe even disbelief. So regarding the Colts, I was not cynical toward them, meaning that, I didn't not believe or did not trust they wanted to win the game against the Chiefs. I just didn't think they could do it. I, I had some serious doubt, reservations, especially when you started watching the game and they gave up 14 points to the cult, to the Chiefs. So I had some doubt. I had some reservations. So I was skeptical rather than being cynical. I think they wanted to win. I just didn't think they would. Now, somehow, that little slight difference between being skeptical or being cynical is still confusing. I borrowed the words of the Associated Press style book, which made a really simple differentiation. It said a skeptic is a doubter, or a cynic is a disbeliever. So maybe that helps. But in some, a little bit of difference does exist. But maybe the question is, why are you even bringing this up? Well, because today we deal, as we get into the book of Malachi, we're going to deal with people who are described as being skeptical and cynical toward the coming and return, both the coming initially and the return of Jesus Christ as our Savior. Meaning that they were skeptical that, first of all, that Jesus never did come, and then skeptical that he would never come back if he didn't come the first time. Equally then, there were people who were cynical that Jesus did not believe that he even existed and would not be coming back. So today, our intent is if we have any skepticism or any cynicism towards these things that he did come or that he's coming back today, our intent is to remove us from among the people who are skeptical and or cynical. That's the intent. So today, we're going to be looking at Malachi 2, verse 17. And Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and the point is towards the direction to remove any skepticism. So today, stand with me, if you're able to, as we look at the word. And we find in Malachi chapter 2, the very last verse, verse 17, and it says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them or by asking, where is the God of justice? Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts, the Father. Well, we're thankful for the reading today, Lord. We're thankful we can gather here today freely to hear a word which tells us that clearly, clearly, Lord, if we had any doubt or reservation, anybody we know had doubt or reservation about your first coming, that, Lord, today we find truly we know that you did come. But, Lord, more importantly, perhaps now for us as believers, let's recognize that you will return and come again. So, Lord, I pray then that we receive the wisdom from this message that you've given us for today to hear. And, Lord, the words that be expressed would not be words that I want to say, but the words truly, Lord, that you want us to gain from this text that we read today. So in that, then, we're thankful for what shall happen here today, what shall we learn, and what we shall apply. We love you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, having read a little bit of the middle sections of Malachi, let us just back up briefly and start with a little bit of background, maybe some contextual setting about what's happening as we look into the book of Malachi. And so with little exception, scholars agree that Malachi can be labeled as a child of the Persian period, which may not mean a lot to you. But then let us understand, in the Persian period is known as a timeline for approximately 538 B.C. to 338 B.C. So there's a 200-year time span in which it's known as the Persian period through history. Now, that time also is the same time that the Israelites, who have been exiled from Babylon, were allowed to go back home. They did so under Cyrus, as he was a Persian, the leader of the Persians. So it's also known that time frame not only maybe as a Persian period, but also as post meaning after the exile, they were allowed to go back home. Now, for further clarity, work with me a little longer, because Daniel, in his book, refers to King Nebuchadnezzar, who took then the Israelites when Nebuchadnezzar came upon the scene He gained the southern kingdom, he took the the best of the Israelites and took them to Babylon and placed them in captivity. But by 562 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar has passed on, and the Babylonian Empire begins to fall and crumble to the point where it's overtaken by the Medes and the Persians. Then that's when Cyrus, the Persian, comes in, and he frees the Israelites and allows them to go back home. So what we find here, then, is looking to the book of Malachi. That's what's taking place, and that historical setting is important because it helps us understand the passage. With return now to Jerusalem from the people who have been placed in exile to Israelites in Babylon, they go back home and begin to rebuild the temple. The temple was completed by about 515-516 BC. So they got to go back home. They got to rebuild the temple. So that's all taking place as we get into the book of Malachi and the reading. The temple's been rebuilt, they're back home, but none. But what we've got to recognize is that even though that's happened, they're kind of disillusioned. They're having a little gray period, a little they're dismayed, and, and a little bit of disillusionment sets in, and it just seems to set things in a different perspective from where not joy and happiness anymore. In short, what happens is they went into this great period and their optimism when they begin to go back home and rebuild the temple has now led into discouragement and it now also then, after discouragement, began to have some moral lapses. And Malachi comes upon a scene with all this taking place and begins to speak to the people. But to just say they've had moral lapses is a little too generic. Let me spell out some of the things that's happening during the time that Malachi begins to have his prophecy. And there's some things, as we hear, that can parallel even to things happening today. Like, for example, he was dealing with mixed marriages. Now, we may think of mixed marriages being the same gender. That's what's happening today. Back then, it may have been a little of that, the more what it was was the fact that you got pagan and Hebrew intermarriage happening, which was a violation of the law. There also then, besides that, was a failure to keep your tithe. Also, there was no concern for the Sabbath. I think Chris may get into the Sabbath a couple of weeks from now and maybe elaborate more. But there's also then the issue of having a lot of corrupt priests. We also have a lot of corrupt leaders in our own time, particularly those who call themselves of a religion. But also then, fifthly, there were social problems in which were just happening. And we have a ton of social problems happening today. So Malachi comes upon a scene and all this is happening, these moral lapses, this this disillusionment. It should have been a great time of joy for them. They got to go back home. They got to rebuild the temple. But that's what's happening now. Their joy has been erased. They're now disillusioned and are now discouraged. So Malachi, whose name happens to mean my messenger, God's messenger, speaks to show that God, while he still shows, God still shows signs that he loves his people. But he doubted that people loved him any longer. He doubted that Israel loved him. He still was showing signs, as God always does, that he loves us. He loves his people. But he was beginning to doubt if the people actually loved him any longer. Isn't that amazing? But when you think about it, it's almost the same thing that maybe is happening today. But it's amazing to think that God would actually have doubt that his people, his chosen people, even at that time, didn't love him anymore. So Malachi then, he comes upon the scene. As he comes upon the scene, then he did not just come to warn Israel to repent because that's part of the message. A lot of prophets come and say you need to repent. He came not only to tell them to repent because of their past sin, he also then presented them a vision of hope for the future. So among other things, Malachi intended to rekindle this future hope of something more glorious. He was telling him a day is coming. A day would come when you would see God intervene in the affairs of men and women, bringing victory to those who obey God's laws and then judgment to those who do not obey which is the essence really then of verses 1 through 5, which becomes our central theme. That Malachi's word, he gets his word directly from the Lord. His word, he's telling the people, was of something glorious on the horizon, something glorious coming, a day in which the Almighty God would intervene and bring victory to those who obey and then judgment to those who do not obey. It was the word from the Lord to the people via the prophet Malachi. That's what he was telling them. They're discouraged, disillusioned, some moral lapses set in, and he tells them, look, you're going to be judged, but there's also going to be a day in which you'll have the Lord to intervene, a glorious day in your future. That was the word he was telling them. The people were both skeptical, meaning doubtful, and cynical, and did not believe about the words that he was speaking. So if all of that then, let's go back to the beginning, history lessons over, let's go back and begin to dissect a little of the text. We'll go back to the very beginning, again, it's the end of the second chapter, the beginning of the third. And notice in verse 1 then of the third chapter, that Malachi directed the attention of the faithless and the hopeless, the questioners, those disillusioned, discouraged, he directed them to the future. Now to see this, we have to go back to verse 17, which is also there in front of us. So note of verse 17, that the people who seemingly are moaned, and the people are skeptical and cynical about the Messiah, notice they have wearied the Lord. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And he explains how. But notice they have wearied the Lord. And we stop there for a minute because it begs the question, what must someone do to weary the Lord? I mean, how is it possible to weary the Lord? Think about it for a moment, because how would you like to be labeled? In all your life, how would you like to be labeled as someone who wearied the Lord? I wouldn't think that would be a very good label to be attached to someone. So they wearied the Lord. So back to the question, how does actually someone weary the Lord? How does even the Lord become weary? Especially when there's other scripture that tells us the Lord never becomes weary. He never becomes tired. He never rests. Like Isaiah forty twenty eight, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. And in Psalms 121. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel shall not neither slumber nor sleep. So then back to the question. How then can the Lord possibly become weary? It's the third time we've asked the question. How can the Lord possibly become weary? So let's try to answer. And let's try to answer first by saying this. The Lord, the, the word weary used here might be a little misleading. Because maybe it's more accurate to say that the Lord is just sick and tired of the complaining, of the questioning him, of their arguing, of their bickering. Or more specifically, Malachi is communicating, as one commentary stated, the Lord is getting tired or weary of putting up of unbelief among his people. Or another commentary worded it as, God was tired, weary of the way the people had cynically twisted his truth. It was happening then, and it still happens today. But even further, some scholars even go further to suggest that Malachi, again, his name meaning God's messenger, is informing his countrymen that God is great in patience, we know. He's very patient with us, but he does at length get weary or get tired of seeing his people persist in sin, especially the sin of unbelief, distrust. He gets weary, get gets tired. That's hard to maybe conceive that, but they point to the fact that God is great in patience, but at length, sometimes he may get weary or tired of her unbelief. Now, when it comes to growing weary and tired, parents actually go through that with all kinds of trouble in life with their children. They actually are very familiar with this kind of weariness or this kind of tiredness. I mean, some of the most frequently words uttered to children from their parents. You know what it is? You said it before. It's how many times do I have to tell you? They just don't seem to learn. And you get tired. You get weary after so long. I mean, you've got patient people. We're all patient to some extent. Some of us less than others, like my brother Ken. He's not patient at all. I mean, he's probably the least patient person I know. And I might have been second to him, but Sheila's helping me with that. But we, get, we're, we only can be patient for so long. And then after a while, we say the words. How many times do I have to tell you? Now, I can tell you this. It's the same thing that happened on the bus Friday afternoon. All right? Sheila was talking about Scarecrow and not knowing anybody without brains. I know several. And I think they ride bus 52. And it just happens. I mean, in case you don't know it, the buses are sometimes set up, and you probably are aware of it, the bigger kids, the high school kids get to sit in the very back. They've earned that. They go to the back, and they sit in the back. The middle school kids kind of in the middle. And the elementary kids, the younger ones, are up front. Now, to your surprise, the ones that I at least have the most problems with are the younger kids up front. I, I rarely have an issue with the middle school and high school kids. But the ones in the front that I seem to have problems with, I mean, the problems are minor perhaps, but it's always like they're wanting to stand up rather than sit down. And I have to tell them, I need you to sit down. Stay out of the aisle. They're always wanting to chew gum. I tell them, I do not want any gum on the bus. Or having food and candy, they sneak it on because they know I don't want it. But when I see it, I actually make them throw it away in the trash can. But when I see it, I'm only patient for so long. And I finally tell them, how many times do I have to tell you? You can't have gum on the bus. You can't eat on the bus. Sit down. Be quiet. How many times do I have to tell you? It's something that we say as adults to our children. It's something we say as bus drivers to students. It's something that coaches sometimes say to their team. How many times do I have to tell you? We grow weary. We grow tired of the rebellion as God does or according to the text. But to use that as illustration, I need to quickly add this, that we obviously should not attribute to the Lord the same kind of impatience and anger that we are so prone to express. I mean, after all, God is much, much, much more patient than we are as humans. I mean, He tolerates us, at least to some extent, at some times, in our sinfulness. The text is just trying to tell us that at times God does at length become tired or weary of all the unbelief and distrust. But we still must recognize that the Lord then is weary with the sin of unbelief and of doubt. Simply, the people, more specifically in Israel, should just trust Him and know that He will deliver. I mean, stop and think about what you know about how many times God has fulfilled A promise he has given to his people, specifically to the people of Israel. I mean, first of all, he had promised to deliver their forefathers from the bondage in Egypt. And he did. You know, he led them by day and night, providing with them food, manna, quail, even giving them water when they cried out for it. As they entered the promised land, he promised then to drive the people that came from the land so they could be given it to them to inhabit it. And he did. We know that tells us the walls miraculously fell at Jericho. God provided for them. He promised them he would take care of them. There are numerous instances of God delivering on his promises time and time and time again, even the rebellion of his people. But because of that, he also promised to bring judgment upon his people if they did not obey him. And he did that time and time again. You can look in Leviticus chapter 10 to find out that Nadab and Abihu, who brought strange fire before the Lord, who was commanded not to, actually was severely disciplined. They died. Saul also lost the chance to become king because he disobeyed. And you can look through 1 and 2 Kings and find many instances of the same type of behavior. But even more specific now to the text, let's recognize that this generation to which Malachi was speaking was not so far removed from remarkable fulfillment of God's promise. Remember, they had been in captivity. They had been in exile. Nebuchadnezzar had captured the southern kingdom and placed him in Babylon, away from the homeland. So now many of the people who had been removed from the homeland had got a chance to go back and restore their land, rebuild the temple, and according to the promise that God gave them. He wasn't going to keep them in captivity forever. He promised he would take them back. So in very short and simple language, we need to recognize that God always keeps and fulfills His promises. It happened then, and it happens now. But yet there are people then, and people even today, even people today, that are still skeptical and cynical about God keeping His promises. More specifically, what promise? The promise to send a Savior, or that He, that Jesus, is truly the Messiah, and that He will even come again. God promises all these things. In the commentary by Roger Ellsworth called Opening of Malachi, he says, in the light of these things in our text of Malachi, we wonder how these people could have the audacity to suggest that God had failed to keep His promise regarding the Messiah. But it took God's delay in fulfilling his promise to mean he was not going to keep his promise. It that many today, many people today make the same mistake about Christ's second coming. They look at the signs of the times, fix the date, and then get disillusioned when God when the date passes. Let's remember that we do not have God's wisdom and that God does not reckon time as we do. If we forget these things, our faith will be shaken, and we shall make ourselves tiresome or weary to God. The point is this. Let us this morning recognize and even admit that God does truly keep his promises. I mean, everyone in here knows we have received his son in this world, right? We call the day, we celebrate the birth Christmas. We have received his son. It was a promise. It's been fulfilled. And God equally then promised that his son will return. No, we do not know the day, time, hour. But we can count on it. It is a certainty. We do not need to be skeptical. If we ever have any doubt, skepticism about it, for anybody you know, it needs to be erased. God will send his son again. It's a certainty, and you can have assurance that God will keep his promise he will have his son to return. Now having said that, it can provoke one of two responses. You can either look forward to that day and all the glory that it shall be, or it may strike fear in you because you may not yet be ready for the return. And it should then, if you're not ready, strike fear in you. Because every one of us should be prepared each and every day. By the way, for those who are fearfully unprepared, we're about to, as I mentioned earlier, get in Revelation chapter 6 and unfold some of the things that will be upon the earth, particularly for those left behind, unprepared, that will be on them at that moment, in that day, which is going to be horrible. I mean, that's another day, actually for Wednesday night, not time to to expand upon that this morning, but it's a message we need to hear about the horrible thing being placed upon the earth for those who are fearfully unprepared and left behind. God will return. His Son will come. But note that verse 1 gives us then the certainty that we need. In case there is doubt, or anybody you know, you may or may not have any doubt, but in case you have doubt or anybody you know has doubt, you can tell them there is certainty of the Messiah's coming. And it's allowed. It's written in verse Malachi chapter three verse one. But notice as you go back and look at that verse again, there's two references to the word messenger. I looked a lot of translations and only found the New King James which actually captures the, the the messenger in the way actually it should appear. I put both translations up there for you to look at. We got the the English Standard Version and we got the New King James Version. The New King James actually does what I prefer. Because in verse three, chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, I'm going to send my messenger. Notice how it's small m for messenger, but the my is capitalized. He's going to send my messenger. The Lord's going to send a messenger. We know him to be John the Baptist. John the Baptist come. That was the small m messenger. But notice also the verse tells us a capital M messenger in the New King James. As in, it's not John the Baptist anymore. He came. But there'll be another person who come. It'll be Jesus, of course, who is the messenger, capital M. Who'll be the new covenant. It's correctly capitalized as M and messenger. All the translations I've read did not convey it in the same way. There's two distinct messengers. So the Lord assures his people, it's a certainty. The Lord assures his people he has not forgotten his promise to send the Messiah. He's going to send a forerunner, a small messenger, capital, I mean, small M, it will be John the Baptist, so he's going to have a messenger to come after that. So here's what I'm saying. Verse 1 directly confronts then the people who have doubt, the disbelievers, the cynics, because Malachi clearly states that the Messiah, Jesus, will come and will be preceded by the prophet John the Baptist, which is in alignment with Isaiah 43. It says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John the Baptist is the forerunner. He is the messenger, small m, that specifically prepares the way for the Savior of the world, the Messiah, Jesus. We accept that. We believe it. Some people do not. They're skeptical of it and think that it has yet to happen. They doubt it or just don't believe yet that it has happened and have cynicism towards it. So verse 1 shows the certainty of the fact that the Messiah has come. For them it would come. For us it has come. But notice that verses 2 through 5 gives us a certain judgment upon the inevitable return. Now as the people were hearing this, as Malachi was speaking, it, I can only imagine that the hearts of the people had great joy upon hearing it that their hearts may have leaped for joy as they heard Malachi assure them, I mean, he's given a vision of hope for the future that the Messiah would come. I mean, they must have been elated. But what joy they had was short-lived because Micah proceeded, uh, Malachi proceeded to give them a very stinging message. And the Messiah was coming, but he would not do what they were expecting. He didn't come to restore the government. He come to deal with the sins of Israel. Notice how verses 2 and 5 tell us this. Malachi makes his point by saying he's going to come like a refiner's fire in verse 2, right? Like fuller's soap. As the refiner removes impurities from silver and gold, the fuller, or the launderer, removes filth from clothes. So the Messiah will come to cleanse the people. The cleansing would apply to all of us, especially the religious leaders. Notice in verse 3, the sons of Levi. They would not be exempt from needing cleansing as well. In fact, they probably, if anyone, need more cleansing. They could even be blamed for everything that's happening. But the Messiah would come to purify them so he could give an offering in righteousness. Notice further, in verse 5, he would come in the capacity of a swift witness against sorcerers, adulterers. Perjurers and oppressors of the helpless. Mentioned earlier how one of the most popular movies right now, Sheila mentioned Wizard of Oz. I haven't seen it, but one of the most popular movies now seems to be during this time Hocus Pocus. There was original Hocus Pocus. There's another one's come out. I I've never seen the movie, so it's not, maybe fair for me to say this, but I judge it just about like I do the Harry Potter movie. Maybe it's not fair to say that. There's a lot of visions, I think, of sorcery and the things happening that just sometimes we need to understand is not something we need to be dealing with. We don't need to be involved in these things. Because it tells us here, even when we think about that, he's coming against the sorcerers and the adulterers and the perjurers and the oppressors of the helpless. And the Messiah who's coming would not delay in confronting such people with their sins. To say another way is that the coming of the Lord would only bring trouble to those who are in the grip of skeptical doubt or cynical unbelief, for the Lord would come to judge them and purify them and cleanse them. I think maybe, arguably, Eugene Peterson in the message maybe says it best. He rewrites verse 5 and says it this way. I am on the way to visit you with judgment. I'll present compelling evidence against sorcerers against adulterers, against liars and those who exploit workers, against those who take advantage of widows and orphans, against those who are inhospitable to the homeless. And look, and anyone and everyone who does not honor me. The Lord is coming back to be able to judge anyone and everyone who does not honor me. Maybe those are the most stinging words to hear because God knows every one of our actions. Jesus' swift witness is coming back, and he will judge the guilty, but he will comfort those who are his. And sadly, then, Malachi's generation, as some today, did not understand the coming of the Lord would only be for those to receive comfort who were ready to receive it with hearts of faith. I mean, the people then, like some now, think that when he does come back, he's going to go back and straighten everything out just like it was in the glory days of Solomon and David. Whenever the the Israelite kingdom was divine, it was was perfect. They're thinking that he will come back and reestablish his government. That didn't happen. It's not going to happen. In due time, it might, but not now. He come back, as you look in the Gospels to see, he did not overthrow the Roman Empire and the Roman government. He came back then to call upon his own people, the religious leaders of the day, and even of this day. He's telling them to repent, insisting that his kingdom is not of this world. That's when he come back. He come back initially to restore, not to restore the kingdom, but he come back to look upon his own people. And he's coming back to look upon his people to judge. So, okay, okay, I hear you, but what does all that mean? What does all that mean? You went a long way then to bring it back home. What does it mean to me? It means this. This passage should warn us. Everything that's been said should warn us about being skeptical or from getting cynical towards God. We need to recognize that skepticism and cynicism truly does exist today. And skeptics and cynics weary and tired of the Lord. I'm just praying, hoping it's none of us. But many people today, with they're doing exactly where Christ's second coming, what Malachi's people did when his first coming. They're living like tomorrow is guaranteed. There's not going to be a second coming. And if we do anything we want, we can always catch up with things later. They discount the sureness of his return. And we see this because they'll mock you, they'll ridicule you, they'll make fun of you. If you tell someone that Jesus is coming back, you're liable to receive some ridicule and some mocking, be made fun of. And it tells us that in 2 Peter chapter 3. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. If you tell someone Jesus is coming back, they're going to be made fun of Because they're cynical about it. Or they're skeptical. They don't believe it. They doubt it. But make no mistake. The messenger with the small m has come. He has fulfilled his role. Christ has come. But he is coming again. Matthew Henry says the first words of this chapter seem a direct answer to the profane atheistical demand of the scoffers of those days. We're saying, where is the God of judgment? To which it is readily answered. Here he is. He is just at the door. The long expected Messiah is ready to appear. And he says, for judgment have I come into this world. That's the second time he comes. Interestingly, For those seemingly prepared, they often go about trying to establish and set dates detailing all the specifics of Christ's return. They want to be able to spell it all out. But the real question should be, are you and we ready truly for the return? I mean, are our hearts truly filled with faith? Because that's what he's going to be looking for when he comes. And he's going to know those who are his, whose hearts are truly faithful. He's going to be able to tell real quickly who is skeptical and who is cynical. J. Vernon McGee says the messenger of the covenant is the Lord Jesus. But this passage has anything to do with his first coming. He, this is his coming not in grace, not as a redeemer, but as a judge, as the one who will establish his kingdom and put down the rebellion, that is on this earth. He hasn't come yet to judge. He first came to save. He came to bring grace, not government. He came as the one who is the Savior, not the sovereign. Therefore, this is God's answer to the people of Israel and also to all of the skeptics and the sinners. God will send him first as a Savior because he is gracious and he wants to save. But that doesn't end it all. He is coming again as the messenger should be capitalized of the covenant. That is to execute justice and judgment on this earth. J. Vern McGee says it correctly. Malachi was God's messenger, correctly informing the people that there will be a messenger to come. He has come. But to be another messenger that would come for the inevitable return. And it behoove all of us, or anybody that you know, to heed the message and accept the capital M messenger that did come and that is coming back. In fact, it's the only way to avoid the wrath that is forthcoming. And because that is true, each of us should prepare now for that day. Again, no, we do not know the day, the time, the hour. But we do know the certainty of his return. And because of that, we should be prepared now for that moment. Interestingly, Malachi ends his entire message. It's only four chapters in length. And it gives us really a more absolute certainty that it should remove any skepticism and cynicism and doubt and disbelief. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant And every evildoer will be stubble, and that day is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left of them, but for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with his healing wings. We need to be prepared. Christ is coming again. Proclaim it. Don't be afraid to tell others. It's the good news they need to hear. It may not be good news at the time, but if they accept Jesus Christ Messiah, it will be good news ultimately. Father, let me take a moment today, Lord, to reflect upon this message and thank you. It's a message, Lord, that perhaps we're fully aware of. Maybe none of us in here today, Lord, and I pray that none of us do have any doubt any disbelief, Lord. We're not skeptics. We're not cynics, Lord. We do believe in the fact that you did come. And further, Lord, we do believe and place trust in the fact that you're coming again. Lord, today then, maybe this just serves as a reminder of the fact that we need to recognize how we're living. And maybe we be living a day that's prepared for whatever day you decide to come back. So Lord, today, let us heed maybe the warning that's inherent in this message to prepare now, whatever day that may be. I'm not suggesting even stating it's going to be next hour, next day, next week, even next year. But Lord, that we need to be ready, prepared for any day it may be and live a life pleasing to you. So Lord, let this message today be that. Let's recognize it's a message for us to hear in which we need to be prepared of the way we're living to bring glory to you. So we thank you for how we can glean that from this message today. And today then we move ourselves today to bring glory to you. we love you, praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.